0: Isaiah chapter 59, let's jump right into it, verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is this here heavy that it cannot hear. In the previous chapter, the Lord had been exposing some of the empty ritualism of God's people. And he explained that one of the results of their empty ritualism was that their prayers were not being answered. Now, in Isaiah chapter 59, beginning at verse 1, the Lord is revisiting this question. Why is it sometimes that the prayers of God's people are not answered? There's no one answer to that question. But Isaiah is going to speak about one of the answers, a possible answer to why our prayers are not answered or given a yes by God. Sometimes we wonder, Lord, why don't you rescue us from this trial? Lord, why don't you put us in a better place? They were wondering if perhaps God had lost some of his stuff. You know, maybe God was having a bad, you know, century or something. And they wondered, verse 1, well, is the Lord's hand shortened? Is his ear heavy? Isaiah the prophet assures them this is not the case. But really, it touches on one of the greatest problems in practical theology. How can there be a God of love and a God who's all-powerful when there's human suffering? If God really loves us, and if he's the God of all power and strength, then why doesn't he fix all my problems? Why doesn't he end all my suffering? This has been a troubling question to many people. If you loved somebody and if you had the power to end their suffering, wouldn't you end it? I mean, if you could wave your hand or think a thought or do a miracle and fix somebody's suffering, if you love them, wouldn't you do it? And Isaiah addresses those who wonder if God perhaps wasn't all-powerful. And that's why their suffering continues. A man actually a rabbi named Harold Kushner, wrote a remarkably wide-selling book titled When Bad Things Happen to Good People. It sold more than half a million copies in hardback before going to paperback, and it was on the New York Times bestseller list for a whole year. The whole point of his book was this. God is all-loving, but he's not all-powerful. God is good, but he's not sovereign. So when bad things happen to good people, you know why? It's because it's just out of God's control. He can't do everything, can he? And Rabbi Kushner advises his readers in his book to, quote, learn to love God and forgive him despite his limitations. And friends, that's certainly not the God of the Bible. Because the book of Isaiah tells us, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. You know, perhaps the problem isn't that God lacks power. Perhaps God lacks knowledge of our problem. Or perhaps he's just not interested. Maybe his ears are heavy towards us. No, that's not the situation at all. As Isaiah reminds us, God's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. He can hear us just fine. What's the problem? Look at verse 2. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Now Let me say in very certain terms that this is not the only reason why a person's prayers may not be answered, but it certainly is an important reason why a person's prayers may not be answered. See, the problem in this situation isn't with God's power. It isn't with God's knowledge. It isn't with God's interest. The problem is with our iniquities. Sin has separated us from God. Now, it's a worthy question for us to ask. In what way does sin separate us from God? Sin does not necessarily separate us from the presence of God. God's present everywhere. Psalm 139, verse 7, David says, Even if I make my bed in hell, you're there. And did you know that even Satan can have an audience with God? Job chapter 1, verse 6 tells us that Satan accompanied other angelic beings and appeared in the very presence of God. It's not that sin separates us from the presence of God. We also know that sin does not separate us from the love of God. Did you know that? The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, God loved us and sent his son to die for us. While we were sinners, he extended his love to us. Do you think that God started loving you when you got your act together? If that be the case, a lot of us here, the Lord wouldn't love the night, would he? No, it's. Sin does not separate us from the love of God. But obviously, Isaiah tells us here that sin separates us. In what way does it separate us from God? Well, sin separates us from fellowship with God, from partnership, from communion. And do you understand why? It's not that complicated. The, the Bible says. How can two walk together unless they be agreed? I mean, how can you have a partnership with somebody if you're in disagreement with them, if you have a basic philosophical difference? Friends, when we're in sin, we have a basic philosophical difference with God. He says something's wrong. We say it's okay. How can two walk together unless they be in agreement? It's not that complicated. At least at the point of our sin... We no longer think alike with God. Sin also separates us from the blessing of God. Now, let me say this very carefully. Sin does not separate us from the blessing of God because blessing is earned by obedience. No, not under the new covenant instituted by Jesus Christ. Yet at the same time, sin does separate us from the blessing of God. Why? Because when you're in sin, you're not trusting God. You're not walking in faith. And faith and trust in God is the means. Not specific obedience, but faith and trust. That's the means to blessing under the new covenant. And when we're in sin, we're not trusting God. We're turning our back to him. We're rebelling against him. Sin separates us from fellowship. It separates us from blessing because at least at the point of our sin, we're not trusting God and relying on him. You might trust in God 10 other ways, but at the point where you're in sin, you're not trusting in him. Sin separates us a third way. It separates us from some of the benefits of God's love. I said some of the benefits of God's love. Think of the parable of the prodigal son. The father loved the son the entire time. But when the son was in the pig pen, feeding the pigs and longing to eat the pig's food, he was not enjoying any of the father's love. The father's love was still extended to him. It's not that the father stopped loving the son, but the son wasn't enjoying the benefits of that love. That's how it is when we as believers are in the pig pen, isn't it? God hasn't stopped loving you but you're not enjoying the benefits of his love. And let me give a fourth point. Sin separates us in some way from the protection of God in this way. Not that God will allow Satan to overwhelm us and consume us. No, You know, Jesus said something very precious to Peter at the very point where Peter was going to deny him three times. He said, Peter, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. Isn't that precious? The Lord's praying for you. You may think you're getting hammered by the devil now. Just think of what would be happening to you if the Lord wasn't praying for you. But friends, you see, in some way, in some measure... Sin separates us from the protection of God because God will then allow trials to come into our life that he perhaps would not have allowed otherwise to correct us. And so sin separates us. Your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. Do you understand, friends, how easy it is for us to blame our problems on everything but our iniquities. You understand what the people of Israel were doing in Isaiah's day? They were blaming God before seeing that the problem was with them. Isn't that crazy? That you'll blame God, that you'll deny who He is before you'll blame yourself. I don't know. If it comes down, if you're in a situation where you've got to weigh the two, all right, well, Is Pastor David wrong or is God wrong? Friends, always put your money on God. God's the right one. I'm the wrong one. But that's how it is with us all the time. Yet so deep is the depravity of man that we will blame God and and think that he has changed in his essential character before we'll blame ourselves. See the last aspect of verse 2? And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. This explains why God's people no longer felt the face of the Lord shining on them as is given in the Aaronic blessing of Numbers chapter 6, where he says, May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may the Lord make his face to shine upon you. They no longer felt that shining radiance of God's face upon them. And why? It was their sins, not the inability of God to hear, not God's lack of interest in hearing. By the way, might I say that this helps us to understand, at least in a small way, The cry of Jesus from the cross when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, as Jesus stood in the place of guilty sinners, there was some way in which the face of God the Father was hidden from him. Not in an ultimate, absolute sense. No, not at all. But in some way. Here's the heavy thing. It was for our sins, not his. Because there was no sin in him. So now the Lord is kind enough to detail the specific sins of God's people in the days of Isaiah. Verse 3. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. They hatch viper's eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies. And from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known, and there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace." You get the picture here, don't you? By the way, Paul very fittingly in Romans chapter 3 quotes some of these verses in his expose of the depravity of the human heart. Lovers of violence, spinners of evil webs, hearts as if they were serpents and reproducing themselves as such. Now, what's amazing to me is if this is the state of God's people in the days of Isaiah, Isn't it amazing, absolutely amazing, that the people could look towards God and say, I guess he doesn't hear so good anymore. I guess his arm isn't as strong as it used to be in the midst of this kind of sin, yet not recognizing that? Verse 9 Therefore, justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness. "'For brightness, but we walk in blackness. "'We grope for the wall like the blind, "'and we grope as if we had no eyes. "'We stumble at noonday as at twilight. "'We are at dead men in desolate places. "'We all growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. "'We look for justice, but there is none, "'for salvation, but it is far from us.'" You see, because of their sin, darkness comes, because God's people had no interest in justice, God did not bless them with justice. Because God's people did not care about righteousness, and they didn't get any righteousness from God. Jesus expressed this principle in Matthew chapter 13, verse 12, where he says, listen carefully, whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but whoever does not have even what he has will, not, will have it taken away from him. You don't seek after justice then God won't bless you with it. You don't seek after righteousness, then God won't bless you with it. And and what's the result of it there? He says in verse 9, we look for light, but there is darkness. Having given themselves over to the darkness, when they want the light, it isn't there. Interesting how that happens. You know, a believer first starts just edging over into the darkness. You know, when you have the light all the time, the darkness is kind of fun, isn't it? You can go and play around in the darkness. There's some anonymity in the darkness. A little bit of freedom in the darkness. And you kind of like it. You know, I can always go back to the light. The light's always there. You know, why get so upset? Why be concerned about darkness? Light's always there. You see, when, when the light is taken away, then you despair in the darkness. And that's what's happened to Judah. There's a turning point at verse 12. Look at this confessing heart here. It's beautiful. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and as for our iniquities, we know them in transgression and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off, for truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. So truth fails and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. You see what they say there in verse 12, our sins testify against us. God's people are now in a better place. They've had their reality check and they see things as they are. No longer do they blame the shortened hand of God or his heavy ear. Now they see it's because their own sins that righteousness stands afar off. So look what the Lord's going to do. Picking it up here in the middle of verse 15. Then the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Now, the the state of God's people was no mystery to the Lord. I mean, they cried out in Isaiah chapter 59, previously in the chapter, Lord, look at our desperate condition. Look at what a desperate place we're in. The Lord knew it all along. It says that the the Lord saw it. Look at how he reacted. It, It displeased him that there was no justice. God saw the condition of his people in a bad place. What did he do? What did he look for? Verse 16, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. You see, not only was the state of God's people bad, but no one among them took the lead in getting it right. Was there not one man who would lead the people in righteousness? That man could not be found. Where where was the intercessor who would plead God's case to the people and the people's repentance to God? No intercessor could be found. There was nobody. God's amazed at this. He he wonders at it. Look look at the glorious truth of verse 16, the second half of it. Therefore. And what therefore is therefore in the Bible, right? It's, It's applying, it's it's bringing out something that was before. God said, I looked around. Who's the man that's going to stand and lead my people in righteousness? There's nobody. Who's the one who's going to be an intercessor for my people? Stand in the gap between, there's nobody. Therefore, God's going to do something. What's he going to do? He's going to obliterate his people. No, no, that's not it. Look at it there, verse 16. This is great. Therefore his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness it sustained him. For he put on a righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. The coastlands he will fully repay, so shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. Isn't that glorious? Let's get the picture of this, folks. God waited and waited for a disobedient Israel to turn to him. He waited and waited for a man to lead them back to him or an intercessor to plead before him. None arose. So what did the Lord do? Pick up his marbles and go home? No. The Lord did it himself. If a man or an intercessor would have stepped forth, it would have saved Israel a lot of calamity. But the fact that no man or no intercessor stepped forth, that did not derail God's plan. You say, well, God, if you were willing to do it by yourself in the end, why didn't you just do it by yourself in the beginning? Because God wants to work in partnership with man. He wants to. He longs to. He wants us to be co-laborers with Christ. He wants to make us heirs with God. He waited to work in partnership through a man. He waited to work through an intercessor. He waited and waited, but if none arose, then God would do it. So what does he do? Isn't it fabulous? Look at it there, verse 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. No man stepped forward to work with the Lord, so the Lord puts on his armor and goes forth to destroy his enemy, to protect his people, and to glorify his name. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Ephesians chapter 5, verses 10 through 17, where Paul talks about the whole armor of God. You never knew that it was actually God's armor, did you? I mean, this is the Lord's breastplate. This is the Lord's helmet of salvation. And that's why Paul calls it the whole armor of God. It's God's very armor in the sense that it belongs to him, and then he allows us to fight in it. But friends, you see a connection here. If you don't put on the armor of God and fight for him, then eventually God will put it on himself and fight for his own glory. But God's preference is to work in us and through us, you using his armor. And the end result will be wonderful. Look at it there. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun in his ultimate victory. A victory that God wants you to share in. But he's going to accomplish it with or without you. The glory of the Lord will be known and respected from east to west. Do you understand that, friends? Listen, God looks at you tonight and he pleads with you. Child, work with me. You you don't know the glory that can come into your life through working in a partnership with me to advance my kingdom. It's the greatest adventure you'll ever live in your whole life. Here it is. It's right before you, my child. Let me tell you, if you don't do it, God's not going to shut down the kingdom. He's going to press through and accomplish his glorious work. You're just going to be the loser for it. You won't get the glory and the honor and the privilege of working with God. Because the principle stands. Look at the end of verse 19 When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. The enemies of the Lord will never triumph over him. Even if they come in like a flood and seem unstoppable, the Lord will lift up a battle standard against him and that enemy will be stopped. That's why God gives his people the glorious privilege of working with him and being, isn't this wonderful from Romans chapter 8, of being more than conquerors. That's how we're more than conquerors. Because we just tag along with him and he wins the battle. I mean, when we work with the Lord, how much do you think we really do? It's like the little kid, you know, with the toy plastic bubble mower following dad around the front yard. You know, I'm helping dad. In some ways, he's just in dad's way, right? Dad could probably get the job done sooner without the kid. But the kid, you know, they're all done with the job. They put their lawnmowers in the garage. And they sit down and they open up a soda. And the boy says, yeah, we mowed the lawn. And you know what? The dad loves that, doesn't he? He loves that. Dad's not going to turn to the kid and say, what are you talking about? You didn't do anything. The dad's filled with so much love. So, it's, just, it's wonderful. He's, I'm working in partnership with my child. It's beautiful, the dad says. Even though he knows very well who did the work. That's how it is when we work with the Lord. He does the work. He lets us join in it and, and say with him, we worked with you, God. That's how we're more than conquerors. But you know what? God's going to win it with or without us. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us the privilege to even share it. Here's what the Lord said. Look at verse 20. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I've put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your descendants nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants says the Lord from this time forevermore. His word endures. His spirit abides. And that's the promise you can cling to. That Redeemer is going to come from Zion. The Lord is going to establish His Word and pour out His Spirit. And if you want to look for some of the glorious result of it, look at chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light is come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and His glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. After the thick and desperate darkness described in the last chapter, do you remember that? Let's take a look back. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 10. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are as dead men in desolate places. That's darkness, folks. Doesn't matter. It's like noontime. But you're like a blind man, and you're in complete darkness. And after that thick and desperate darkness, well, this is the glorious rescue from the Redeemer, isn't it? Light has come. So God says to his people, respond to that light that's come, arise and shine. Darkness is for lying down. Light is for rising up. Darkness is for gloom and sleep. Light is for shining When the light has come, we've got to respond and arise and shine. When I was a kid, that's what my mom used to say when she'd wake us up in the morning. Rise and shine. She didn't know she was quoting from Isaiah chapter 60. (laughs) Now notice this though. First, we receive God's light. Your light has come. God doesn't say, rise and shine and hope that the light comes. Arise and shine and, you know, after you shine shining for a while, then I'll send my light. No, God says, your light has come. I've brought it. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you're born again by the Spirit of God, if you're, if you're a Christian, and ladies and gentlemen, your light has come. It has come. I don't know what kind of darkness you might be living in. I don't know what shadows have been cast across your life. But your light has come. So what does God say to you? He looks you square in the eye tonight and says, you rise up and shine. Arise up and shine. Now you can't shine until the light comes. Let's face it, there's no light in us by nature, right? Until God puts his light upon us, until the the light has come upon us, we can't shine it out. But, But once the light has come, once it's there, then there's something wrong if you don't rise and shine. Get that bushel up over your life. Get it out of there. You're covering it up. Your lights come, so arise and shine. And that's not a look at there, verse 1. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. This is no earthly light. This is the light that emanates from the glory of the Lord. This is like the light of Jesus in the transfiguration when his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light, according to Matthew chapter 17, verse 2. Sometimes, Harsh, bright light can be disturbing or uncomfortable, but not this warm, wonderful light that pulsates from the glory of the Lord. But not only that, verse 3, the Gentiles shall come to your light. When the Lord lifts up his glorious light over Israel, the Gentile nation shall see it. They're going to be attracted to the light even kings will be attracted to the brightness of Israel's rising. And this will be ultimately fulfilled in the millennial kingdom of Jesus when Israel is lifted up among all the nations. Look what else is going to happen to Israel in that millennial kingdom, verse 4. Lift up your eyes all around and see, they all gather together. They come to you. Your sons and daughters come from afar. And your daughters shall be nursed at your side. Then you shall see and become radiant, and your heart shall swell with joy because of the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. The multitude of camels shall cover your land, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Neboiath shall minister to you. They shall ascend with acceptance on my altar, and I will glorify the house of my uh, glory. Who are these who fly like a cloud and uh, like doves to their roost? Surely the coastlands shall wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them, to the name of the Lord your God and to the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. The sons of foreigners shall build up your walls. And their kings shall minister to you, for in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I had mercy on you. Therefore your gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day or night, that men may bring to you the wealth of the Gentiles and their kings in procession. For the nation and kingdom which will not serve you shall perish, and those nations shall be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the pine, and the box tree together to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. See, through this passage, one of the great themes is regathering. The Lord says, your son shall come from afar, and we may suppose that in the millennial kingdom of Jesus, every Jewish person remaining on the earth will be gathered together in the land of Israel from every nation on earth. The present day regathering of Israel is a precious preview of this ultimate and complete regathering, but it's a very incomplete regathering of the Jewish people in Israel right now. You understand that there's more Jewish people who live in New York than live in Israel, more Jewish people who live in Southern California than live in Israel. In the millennial kingdom, that's not how it's going to be. All your sons and your daughters will come from afar. What we have now is a precious preview of that ultimate regathering. It's rich with prophetic significance, what we see right now, but it's not this ultimate millennial regathering. But that's not all that's going to come to them. If you also notice, the wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. Not only will they receive the treasure of their people, but also the literal treasure of the Gentiles shall come to Israel, the millennial kingdom. The nations will willingly give them their wealth. Much as the Egyptians willingly gave the Israelites riches when they left Egypt. You know, that's how it was, wasn't it? the Israelites left Egypt? All the people of Egypt said, here, take this, take this, take this. Gold, silver, jewels, precious gems. Take it all. Actually, what it was is back wages. Because Israelites had served without pay for so long as slaves. Here it is. Here's your back wages. Go. And so much will be given to the people of God, to the Jewish people in the days, of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, that if you notice it, they'll have to keep the gates open continually. Verse 11 means that's how many caravans are going to be coming in. You keep the gates open all the time. And why? Why do they do it? They do it to glorify the Lord to the name of the Lord your God and to the Holy One of Israel. They do it for God's glory not just for the glory of Israel itself. Now, look at the contrast here, beginning at verse 14. Also, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you, and all those who despise you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet, and they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. See, the, the ones who afflicted you before, now they're going to bless you. Before you had affliction, now you had blessing. Look at verse 15. "...whereas you had been forsaken and hated, so that no one went through you, I will make you an eternal excellence, a joy of many generations. You shall drink dry the milk of the Gentiles, and the milk the breasts of kings. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I'll bring gold. Instead of iron, I'll bring silver." Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. And I'll make your officers peace. And I'll make your magistrates righteousness. Violence shall no longer be heard in your land, neither wasting nor destruction within your borders. And you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. Isn't that spectacular? The people who previously persecuted Israel, and specifically Jerusalem, they're going to come and have a different mind, a different heart towards them. You take what was bronze before, now it's gold. What was iron before, now it's silver. Wood, bronze, God exchanges what was old and bad before, and he exchanges it now for what's glorious and good. I think there's even a greater miracle in here. It's in verse 17. A greater miracle than turning bronze to gold or iron to silver. It's turning magistrates to righteousness. Look at it there, verse 17. And your magistrates' righteousness. Righteousness. All the judges, all the rulers, all the bureaucrats, God's going to make them righteousness. That's a miraculous transformation. (laughs) So here you go. Violence shall no longer be heard in your home, in your land rather, neither wasting nor destruction within your borders. Now the ultimate fulfillment of these things waits because the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ is not yet here. But the king of that kingdom is here. And he wants to do some of that work right now on a different level. The ultimate kingdom of God is not here. But when Jesus said, the kingdom of God is among you, he meant it. See, because you can have the kingdom of God any place where the king's rule is recognized. And the benefits of that rule are received. Your home can be a place of the kingdom of God. How about this? Translated in the home. It can be said of a Christian home. Look at verse 18. Violence shall no longer be heard in your home, neither wasting nor destruction within your walls, but you shall call your walls salvation and your doors praise. Wouldn't you like that for your home? It can be that way. The kingdom of God isn't ultimately established on earth. But God has His kingdom community, His kingdom people all over. And for citizens and the king, we can enjoy these blessings right now. Take a look here now, verse 19. The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you. But the Lord will be to you an everlasting light, and your God your glory. Your sun shall not go down, nor shall the moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and the days of your mourning shall be ended. Also your people shall all be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. We read that and we say, oh, Lord, bring your millennial kingdom. Lord, bring this amazing transformation to the earth. Bring it on, Lord. And what does he say? He says, I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. God didn't say that it would happen soon, though on an eternal scale you could consider it soon. But God would hasten it. God would hurry hurry it along, expedite it, in its time. In other words, when its time has come, the Lord will hasten it, but not before its time. I think this can be said of so many works of God, where you could say, I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. In other words, I've seen so often when the Lord moves, you're praying for something. You have a vision for something. You have a heart for something. And time after time, week after week, month after month, year after year passes, and it seems like nothing happens. And in your mind, you're thinking, all right, well, for to get from where it is now, from, from where the Lord wants to take it, it's going to take a long time. Boy, I mean, Lord, you know, and, and you start thinking of all the steps that the Lord needs to go through, you know, and you're kind of instructing the Lord on all this, on, on, on how he needs to do his work, and you got it all planned out. You know, Lord, Rome wasn't built in a day, and let's just, you know what, I got this good chart of progress here for you. And you get discouraged because the Lord isn't keeping up with your time chart. Seems like nothing's happening. I mean, not even the first thing. And then all of a sudden, At his appointed time, God breaks it loose. He rips up your time chart, and he does it all, boom, at one time. And you stand back and say, Lord, why didn't you do this five years ago? And the Lord said, I'll hasten it in its time. God knows his timing. He knows what he's doing with it. The Lord will hasten it, but not before its time. Verse one of chapter 61. Check this out. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Here, Isaiah is prophetically speaking for the Messiah. And the Messiah announces, first of all, that he's blessed and empowered by the spirit of the Lord God. And you recognize that in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 22, Jesus spoke in the beginning part of his ministry at the synagogue of Nazareth, his hometown. And when he spoke, he opened up the scroll to Isaiah 61. Perhaps it was an assigned reading for that day. Perhaps it was chosen by him. We really don't know. But he read from the beginning of the chapter through to the first line of verse 2. When he sat down... This was his teaching on it. By the way, when you sat down, that's when you began teaching. In the world Jesus lived in, check this out. The audience stood and the teacher sat. How do you like that? <laughs> now, the, now the tail's wagging the dog, I think. No, it, it, so that's how it was. Jesus sat down and he began to teach. And what did he teach on the passage? He said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You know what he said? He said, I'm the one. I'm the guy. This is me. Jesus is the person described here as the one, the spirit that the Lord God is upon. If Jesus, the son of God and God, the son, perfect in both his deity and his humanity, if he needed the spirit of the Lord God, what does that say about us? perfect in his humanity. Friends, Jesus did not need the Holy Spirit to help him with the sin problem. Jesus did not need the the empowering of the Holy Spirit to do that. Yet he relied upon the empowering and the infilling and the anointing of the Spirit of God. How much more must we? And then he goes on to describe the great ministry he will have. Did you see it there in the middle of verse 1? to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted. You see, sin impoverishes, right? It makes people poor. So he's going to preach good tidings to the poor. Because sin breaks heart, he's going to heal the brokenhearted. Because sin makes captives, he'll proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And because sin oppresses, he'll proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the day of freedom and glory. But that's not all. Look at it there in verse 2. Because sin is a crime that must be avenged, he will proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. You know what's fascinating? When Jesus read this in Luke chapter 4, he stopped short of reading that sentence. He stopped right before it. He ended with, it says there in verse 2, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He never went on to say in Luke chapter 4, and the day of vengeance of our God. Why? Because that wasn't part of Jesus' earthly ministry. He wasn't there to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. That's for his second coming. No, that comma there, the comma between to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, comma, and the day of vengeance of our God, that comma has stood for 2,000 years. It shows us something of the nature of biblical prophecy. It may shift gears and time frames quickly and without warning. Here's something else glorious to consider. Well, how, how long is the acceptable time of God, the time of his favor? Well, that's a year, right? To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. How long is the time of his vengeance? That's a day. The day of his vengeance. Isn't that glorious how the Lord just... He he could have exchanged. I mean, the thought is just of time, but he wanted to give a long-time illustration for uh, the the idea of God's favor and a short-time illustration of his vengeance. But that's not all. If you look at it there in verse 3, because sin brings grief, he'll comfort all those who mourn. Verse 3, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes. You see, when a person was in mourning in ancient Israel, they would put ashes upon their head. You'd say, why? Well, it was a way of saying, I don't care anything about my appearance. My appearance is irrelevant to me. I'm so consumed with mourning. And then they would be very deep in their mourning, very uh, intense in what Isaiah calls here the spirit of heaviness. So what does God do? He says, I'm going to take away those ashes of mourning and I'm going to give my people beauty. Now that word beauty is precious. You know what it actually means? It means a crown or a headdress of beauty. In other places in the Old Testament, that exact word is translated exquisite hats or headdresses. That's what God says again. Let's sweep those ashes off of your head. Here's a crown. That's not all. Instead of the mourning itself, he gives people the oil of joy. Instead of the spirit of heaviness, he gives his people the garment of praise. So here's my question for you tonight. Why do you sit in the ashes? Why do you mourn? And why do you indulge the spirit of heaviness when Jesus gives you something so much better? I'm not saying that there's not a time to mourn. I'm not saying that there's not a time to, to even feel that spirit of heaviness. But friends, it's just a passing time, isn't it? A pastor friend of mine was working with a family who had a son die under very tragic circumstances. It might sound awfully bold to you. It might even sound extreme. But what the pastor did was, as he was speaking with me, and they were convinced that even though the son died under very tragic circumstances, they were convinced that the son was a believer and that he was with the Lord. The pastor came to them, and after a number of days, when they were deep in mourning, he came in one day with a smile, and he said, you know what, today's the last day for your mourning. Tomorrow, you're moving on with this. And it might sound harsh, but it was perfectly led of the Spirit of God to say at the time. And that's what they did. They gave themselves the time for that, and they said, all right, now it's time to move on. We're going to exchange the ashes for a crown. We're going to exchange, as it says there, the uh, mourning for the oil of joy. And we're going to exchange the spirit of heaviness and receive that garment of praise. Why? That they may be called trees of righteousness. The Lord may plant our roots deep and strong, strong, beautiful, useful as trees, even oak trees and, and the trees of righteousness at that. That's what the Lord wants to make of us, isn't it, friends? Trees of righteousness. That's what the Christian growth is oftentimes like. It's like the growth of a tree. Trees take a long time to grow. It can take decades and decades for a little acorn to grow into a mighty oak tree. But that's a tree of righteousness. Squash grows up overnight. I don't see her squash of righteousness, folks. <laughs> it's trees of righteousness. Lord knows what he's doing, and he builds us in this way. Verse 4. This is what God's people will do. They shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Isn't that beautiful? God loves to restore ruins. He wants to use his people to restore and rebuild things that are broken down and ruined. And under the empowerment of the Spirit and the ministry of the Messiah, God's people will be rebuilders. Even if it's been destroyed for many generations, God's people will be rebuilders. And they're set apart to serve the Lord. Look at verse 5. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. Men shall call you the servants of our God, and you shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast. God's people, under the anointing of the Spirit and the ministry of the Messiah, they have a holy occupation. They're priests of the Lord, they're servants of our God. Way back in the book of Exodus, Hundreds of years before the time of Isaiah, God spoke to his people and said, I want you to be a kingdom of priests unto me. In the millennial kingdom, it's going to be fulfilled. Then look at the great joy they have in their blessings. Verse 7. Steady your shame, you shall have double honor. Instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. See, they'll possess double in their lands. You know what that means? means everybody will be as the firstborn. That's what the firstborn received. He received the double portion of the inheritance. If there's three children in the family, three boys who are going to receive an inheritance, they would divide the inheritance four ways. And the firstborn would get the double, the double portion. God says, they're all going to receive the double. And the everlasting covenant, verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth and will make with them an everlasting covenant. Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. You see, this covenant will bring prominent blessings, blessings so prominent that that everybody will see, everybody will take note of it it brings salvation and righteousness. Look at it, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth from before all the nations. You see how verse 10 begins? I'll greatly rejoice in the Lord. I love this. The chapter's filled with blessings. God's pouring out blessing after blessing after blessing. But the prophet does not declare, I will rejoice in the blessings. I will rejoice in the Lord. Isn't that one of Satan's more subtle and clever strategies against us? get us to love the blessings more than the Lord of the blessings. I think Isaiah was reading Paul in Philippians chapter 4, right? I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. Sounds to me like I will rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Why? Because he's clothed me with garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robes of righteousness. You have that covering tonight, don't you say? You've received it from the Lord, Right? No, it's the glorious garments. It's like the wedding clothes people wear. You may have never dressed as nice today as you ever have on your, as you did on your wedding day. That's right. God's going to clothe you that gloriously with his salvation. But not only are they glorious garments, they're given garments. Right? They're given. It says very clearly there, for he has clothed me. He has covered me. You don't do it yourself. And then the, Blessing of God grows. Verse 11, For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth. That's how the Lord's going to bless. That's how the Lord's going to grow. See, it isn't manufactured. It grows. Even as the earth brings forth its bud, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth from before all nations. You know, there's a sense in which we can never make anything grow. What can you get inside of a seed and turn on the genetic component that makes the seed spring forth and bud? You can't do that. You see, the the blessing of life and growth is held miraculously inside of that seed. But what you can do for the seed is provide the right environment for the seed to bud, grow, and be fruitful. Now that's how we receive and flourish in God's blessings. We can't make God's blessings. We can't manufacture God's blessings. We can't earn God's blessings. But we can put our hearts and minds in the right environments to see blessing grow and flourish. Now, let me give you three keys, and these aren't only three keys. I'll just throw out three things that came to my heart immediately about the environment for blessing. You want blessing to grow in your life? Here's the environment. First of all, faith. Why don't you just believe that God wants to bless you? You just believe what the Bible says, that God's for you? There's people here tonight. Deep in your heart, you think God's against you. You think God doesn't want to bless you. Every day you should wake up and believe that God wants to bless you. Secondly, not only faith, fellowship with God. Draw near to Him. You know, if you really believe that the Lord wants to bless you, you're going to seek him a lot more, aren't you? I mean, you, just, you see him as the God of the open hand before you want to come and just come into his open arms. Fellowship. Let me give you a third one for that environment for blessing to grow. Obedience. Faith, fellowship, obedience. Plant that deep in your life. And you know what? Blessing will grow forth miraculously. So let's pray and ask the Lord to do that work in our life. Lord God, we stand before you tonight as a people who need your blessing. Lord, we're not so.